Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former RAF Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach, Marcus Dimbleby. Hello and welcome back to The Thinking Leader. Do we have an exciting guest for you today? We are joined by Rebecca Harding, who is an independent trade economist and CEO of Coriolis Technologies. We are going to be talking about the weaponization of trade. What a timely topic, isn't it, Marcus? It's absolutely indeed. And lovely to welcome you onto the show, Rebecca. And great to see you once again after our trip in London, where we got to have lunch together. Yeah, it was brilliant. And thanks so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So what do you mean by the weaponization of trade? The weaponization of trade is uh, the concept by which trade is being used as a tool in foreign policy. Now, you could argue that right since time in memoriam, trade has been used as a tool in foreign policy. But what makes this different now is the fact that we are in a position where um, the use of social media means that we can whip up a nationalist rhetoric around trade, we can whip up an economic nationalism around trade, and we can actually use trade as a tool to harness a political momentum behind what we're doing, which means that in an era where we've got a fairly tenuous nuclear peace at the moment, how do you gain influence? How do you gain power, influence, coercion over other countries? The simple way is by actually using your trade as a mechanism to influence other nations. And that's what we mean by it. So obviously, this has huge implications for geopolitics and foreign policy, but it also has big implications for businesses too, right? Exactly that, because it means that businesses are going to have to think about um, whether or not their markets still exist, whether they're still in a position to be able to um, work in a market. I mean, we've seen this happen with Iran. More recently, we've seen it happen with um, with Russia, obviously, and Belarus. But we've also seen it happen with China. Um, mm-hmm. So um, the extent to which technology companies can operate in China, obviously now the embargoes and everything that are operating with Russia, um, and we had it before with Iran. So the, the sanctions regime is now being used as a tool of coercion, the embargoes regime, the tariff regime. And it's really interesting, but foreign policy is actually being operated through the State Department and not through and the Commerce Department and not through not through um, not through foreign policy at all or foreign policy mechanisms tool. It's interesting. One of the things that you've said in, in, in our conversations that I think is really interesting that is something that a lot of our listeners who are, who are business leaders should be thinking about is that businesses as a result, willingly or unwillingly, have now been enlisted as foot soldiers in these, these great global conflicts like the ones going on right now in, in Eastern Europe and in Asia. 
Exactly. And and it's not just businesses, it's banks as well. So the entire commercial segment of the, if you like, military industrial complex has suddenly become industrial. Um, it's it's the industrial complex that's doing this. It's about um it's about the fact that they don't know when the next sanction is going to come along, they don't know um when the next embargo is going to come along, the next export control is going to come along, but they are charged with implementing these policies, and of course that affects their business models so what they have to do of course is think about what's coming along that might create that instability that might be an unforeseen consequence and what you're seeing one of the big unforeseen consequences at the moment of course is inflation because we didn't realize exactly how how much um, sanctions and restrictions on oil and gas and so on were going to create inflationary pressures that was never predictable in terms Mm. of the amount that oil and gas coming out of Russia was going to then become weaponized itself and become a stranglehold on the global economy. That then creates instability for companies understanding how to price um, in different markets and price at home. But it also creates a political instability as well because it begins to fragment the consensus around economics effectively as a domain of warfare. Yeah, I think it's fascinating, Rebecca. And you talked early on how this social media frenzy has allowed this thing to become much bigger than it is and much quicker. And that very much ties into the hyperconnectivity that we talk about when we talk about VUCA, the volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity of the world. A lot of people have added the H to that, to this hyperconnected that the world now is. And as before, we think about these things as we talked about geopolitical. But now what we're seeing is the cascade effect of that is moving through geopolitical, political, national, and into people's homes now. And as you said, with the recession coming and inflation, People are now fearful of this and often frenzied by what they're reading on social media and people are taking obviously false truths, misinformation, disinformation and creating often a moral panic with these things that are dominoes toppled a long way away, but quickly come into our real lives day to day and are clearly having an impact. I, th- I think that point about moral panic is a really important one because you can create a moral panic around, well, President Trump did it with absolutely beautifully. You create a moral panic, you create an enemy, um, and you can do that through social media. You can do it with China. So you start to say China, um, and you begin to create um, a kind of consensus hatred against anything Chinese. You do it, you do it um, in any circumstance, and you can start to create economic enemies. And so the power of rhetoric almost to be able to steer that social media conversation and create um, that degree of populism, which is is there because people feel out of control. The problems that we have at the moment as a planet are out of the everyday control of people. The, the economic pressures they they face, They've, the, the whole challenge of globalisation, in a sense, has been around making sure, well, well the challenge of globalisation has been inequality, people feeling like they don't have equal access to the resources. There's been a priority placed on people from um, emerging economies is a sense and perception. So we need to bring these things back home we need to start thinking about um about how we nationalize those um those types of sentiment and the best way to do that is through trade
because you can very easily you can say look right let's 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 make america great again let's have american products out there in the market you know the the whole british campaign around export is great you know and with the big union flags attached to it it's a it's a very 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 nationalistic campaign um and and by doing that you get people hooked into that trade framework you get people hooked into that nationalistic narrative and so they then begin to mistrust anybody from the other side um, and it creates enemies so right at the beginning of the Brexit campaign and if you look at the whole history of this over the last few years look at the Brexit campaign in the United Kingdom and the phrase was enemies across the table these are our European friends oh, right and these are these are NATO partners these are and, and so you're sort of socializing that geopolitics and 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 by by socialising it, democratising it in that way, you're actually adding to the layers of risk associated with it because because you've created a populist momentum behind it. Well, if there's if there's a master of this new game, it's got to be Vladimir Putin, right? I mean, in terms of, of of figuring out how to pull those levers, how to stoke those fires, how to manipulate public opinion using social media. I, I would agree completely, and I think I think what Vladimir Putin has done very well in, in in the kind of fog of war that we're seeing at the moment is manipulate that nuclear message. Um, so, I mean, he's done two things, and anybody would argue that he strategically is probably several moves ahead of every, every of everybody else. Um, so, what he's done with the nuclear message is he said. We're going to use nuclear weapons. So what we're going to do is um, they've altered the terms of engagement. They've altered what determines a nuclear deterrent um, and a trigger for a nuclear deterrent. They've said that could mean economic sanctions as well as as well as um, as well as any military action. Um, and they've made it absolutely clear. President Putin has made it absolutely clear that this is a, this is a particular um, a particular existential threat. That economic sanctions are an existential threat. So. On the one hand, there's there's that which again create, means that economics becomes a domain of warfare. It has been weaponized in that type of a way. So sanctions and trade is weaponized formally. It's it's we are fighting an economic war. The other way, of course, is through commodity prices. And mm. you know, it, mm. it's absolutely no secret the phrase weaponization of energy supplies and, and and energy prices and weaponization of oil and gas. This weaponization word is floating around all over the place now, and 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 it's it's very true that the stranglehold that 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 um, the Russians now have on on global energy markets is absolute, um, because there are energy shortages in Europe, there are less energy shortages elsewhere in the world, but in Europe it's particularly severe, um, and that means that you know you've got a control over what's going to happen in those markets. You've seen that recently, uh, yesterday actually with OPEC. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's created a situation where that whole energy dimension to everything, again, it, it, it's geopolitical, geo in the absolute sense of the word, but it's also very much going into the houses of every single person on the planet. Um, and and that's that's where it starts to be socialized again. So managing that message both from a nuclear point of view and from an energy point of view means that it's hitting everybody. It's almost like a definition of total war. Well, and you know, you you look at what just happened with the 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 Russia's growing uh, alignment with Saudi Arabia, or I should say Saudi Arabia's growing alignment with Russia, and in in OPEC's decision, and that 
very clearly you can topple the dominoes from that in this country to seeing this having a significant impact on our midterm elections, like increasing the likelihood that that Republican, you know, MAGA candidates win because the, they were one of the reasons they were losing ground was because gasoline prices were falling back down again. And gasoline prices are such a major driver of political action in the United States. And so Putin knows that by raising gasoline prices, that helps put the red hats back in power, which if they get enough of them back in, creates a situation that very clearly will lead to the U.S. pulling support for Ukraine, back ending sanctions on Russia, you know, that sort of thing based on past experience. And so it, it's a very clear line between an, an actual shooting war in Ukraine and weaponizing the price of oil at the pump in the United States. That goes to Rebecca's point of Putin being the master strategist here. He's without a doubt playing as hook, line and sinker with, with his, his game. And he's well ahead on the moves because... As you said, this is no longer a, while we're talking nuclear and, you know, soldiers on the ground war, it has become without a doubt a trade war. And the definition you just gave there, Bryce, of what might happen and the impact that could have on the US and likely in the UK, we saw protests in London last week. All of these things are starting to have this social impact on nations at the lowest level possible. And he knows this, he's playing this and creating this. But here's the question I have for you, Rebecca. Obviously, he's a sophisticated strategist, but he also, as I understand it, was taken quite by surprise by the swiftness and power of the sanctions that, that were imposed after the invasion of Ukraine. Um, how are, is the West doing a decent job of weaponizing trade to, to counter him? Interesting question, um, because I think the answer to that in the short term is yes. Um, I think the longer term picture is um, we need to be wary of what we wish for, um, because um, if you think about this in terms of zero sum games, first of all, assume we're all playing chess. Let's start with that as a theory. We're all playing chess. Somebody wins, somebody loses, or you just get or you just get a stalemate on the board. And at the moment, what's happened is we've seen it flipping about and we're likely to end up with some kind of a stalemate where we end up with constant economic sanctions, constant economic, um, constant economic stress um, and, you know, kind of little, little bits and pieces of um, little bits and pieces, but bits of annexation and, you know, battles and, and missiles being, being thrown around and everything. And it's all very uncomfortable, and the risk of miscalculation is very high that we might actually get some kind of military involvement at that point. But think about it in a bigger strategic context. Is Russia actually playing chess at the moment? And I would argue that the nature of modern warfare has changed very, very fundamentally, that we're not actually talking about zero-sum games anymore. We're talking about a situation where war and peace can coexist, which is a Chinese philosophy after mm -hmm. all. And we're looking at something which is actually very, very different in terms of the framework of thinking, strategic thinking, and it's about encirclement. Now, if we take that encirclement and we're actually playing Go rather than chess, mm -hmm then think, actually, we always assumed that the Russians were, grass, were chess grandmasters. Actually, it turns out they're quite good at go as well, because what they've done is they've analysed 
what we would do as a response. And I would argue they've done this very, very well, because what was the consequence of them invading Ukraine? We were never going to put boots on the ground. We might put banks on the ground and companies on the ground, which is what we've done, but we won't put boots on the ground because we can't because of the nuclear deterrent. And if we did, mutually assured destruction. So we can't do that. So what do we do? We say, okay, well, well, we'll we'll sling a couple of sanctions at the Russians. We'll exclude a couple of people, and we'll stop. We'll stop people. Uh, Russia's only big houses in the centre of London. You know, we'll do do a couple of things like that, and we'll, we'll make sure that their ships have to moor somewhere else. Um, you know, and it's it. We do something like that, and and they will have modelled that. I mean, their economists will have sat and gone. That's something that the West can do. Um, they maybe didn't understand the cohesiveness within the NATO alliance. And I think that is one thing that we can say actually is a win out of all of this. This is something that we've done together. The the Western alliance, if you like, is held together very, very, very strongly. But even if they've modelled that, they'd still know that our tools non-militarily are very weak. Um, So the issue now is where do we go from here? Do we live with that sort of suboptimal war and peace coexisting, which is actually a game of encirclement and has lots of consequences about the balance of East and West and the role of China and all sorts of things? Or do we say, actually, we want to go and win? In which case, how are we going to get how are we going to get Russia completely excluded? How do we starve finances from uh, the military industrial complex in Russia? How do we do that? So if I'm a business leader, what should I be thinking about as I make my plans, as I set my strategies for my company? If I'm if I'm a global, you know, multinational, if I'm a bank, if I'm a business that operates globally, what are some of the things that I need to be thinking about in this in this brave new world that you've described? Um, you have to think about um, volatility and disruption being the new normal, um, and I think. Quite often people have thought over the last few years um, we can plan strategically over a three to five year horizon. I think now what we're seeing is unforeseen consequences all over the place. And you know more about that than I do. I mean, you know, if I I speak to banks in the sector, they're saying – we don't know what to do with our Russian operations anymore. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to do with, um, you know, our legal advice that we're providing to Russian organisations. And you know, the the latest set of sanctions looks like they're including legal advice as well. So there are a whole bunch of things, and all of a sudden, on a day to day basis, things can change so dramatically that 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 we're not in a position of clarity anymore. And and you know, it's a bit like, as I said, the foot soldiers on the ground. They don't necessarily know what the military, what the generals are thinking or where they're going, but they've still got to act on their behalf. And Very this true. is exactly what's happening. So thinking like a foot soldier is actually quite, quite, quite an interesting exercise for a global bank or a global corporate to be doing. But that's what they have to do. And I think a great way to support them in that is going back to what the military have done is wargaming, is yes. putting these banks and these businesses into these scenarios that are sometimes often so awful that they don't want to think about them but the reality is and the evidence is there that these things are happening as you said daily the occurrence of these things is so frequent now your five six year strategy plan is dead in the water after three months if not sooner so i think from a business perspective facing into some of these hard facts that we're seeing and are likely to become even more so downrange 
is giving you that sort of future proofing as best as you can without predicting the future to be able to sustain. Absolutely. And one of the things that, that my clients are saying to me, and again, you know more, more about this from a, a red team thinking point of view, but I mean, one of the things that my clients are saying to me is we need to have a 360 view of all of this. We don't have a 360. We have a very two-dimensional view of what's going on at the moment. Um, and unless we have um, an understanding of everything that could potentially happen, we're not going to be able to cover all bases. And, and that's about a different way of thinking, I think. The, the complexity of this is huge, isn't it? This, this We talk about complex adaptive systems. This has now gone full-blown holistic, 360. Mm-hmm. And as you said, most are still thinking in their very tunnel vision, two-dimensional, and unaware of what else is on the playing field, on the battlefield around them globally. It makes me think of uh, Fulbright's famous quote that we must dare to think about unthinkable things because when things become unthinkable, thinking stops and action becomes mindless. And I think that's the, you know, obviously he was speaking about the the threat of global thermonuclear war, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Um, but that same calculus is back on the table today. And yeah. Yeah, exactly. And give me, let me give you an example of that. So, um, I mean, one of the things that has been an absolute no-no for banks in the last in the last decade and longer um, is is enabling finance of defence um, and you know defence equipment and, and so on. It's been really heavily controlled. It's been really heavily closely financed, and everything is regulated and watched because it's been seen as an absolute no-no. If you're related um, in any way, shape, or form anywhere in your supply chain to something that might be associated with defence or dual-use goods or military items, then it's very, very, very carefully scrutinised and possibly not possible to finance. And what we're seeing now in the wake of um, in the wake of Russia's action in Ukraine is banks going maybe this is actually something that we ought to be looking at maybe actually all of a sudden it's somewhere on our ESG spectrum because hmm. it's good governance right and and yeah. in 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 six months that rhetoric has changed now, maybe all of a sudden we actually should be working with defense companies because that ensures that we get um, hope we get guns to the good guys um, and and not to the bad guys, and and that suddenly again it, it alters the whole business model. It alters the whole perception of what we think trade is all about, what we think the things that we should be trading and things that we shouldn't be trading is about. And it's it's a complete mindset leap. And 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 having the capacity to think like that is really important. Yes. Wow. Well, this is this is so fascinating. Let's take a quick break here, and when we come back, let's talk about how business leaders can develop that mindset. Hey folks, Bryce here. If you're listening to this and you're liking what you're hearing and you're wondering, am I a red team thinker? We have an easy way for you to find out. Just go to the show notes, click on the link there to our free assessment to find out if you are a red team thinker and what you can do to think more effectively, to lead more effectively, and to make better decisions faster in your complex world. Like I said, the link is in the show notes, or you can simply go to our website, redteamthinking.com. Check it out. I can't wait to see how you score. Welcome back. Well, we have been having a pretty intense conversation about uh, the fate of the free world or fate of the entire world uh, and how uh, effectively some nations have 
been able to weaponize trade and enlist global companies, and in many cases, not even global companies, but but companies at all levels in these great geopolitical conflicts that are going on. We've been talking mostly about what's going on in Ukraine and, and with Russia. We haven't talked at all really about what's going on with China, um, which actually, before we get into this question that I want to talk about, about what businesses can do to, to deal with these, we probably should at least touch on <laughs> what's going on uh, with China and Taiwan too, right? What, uh, how has China and the U.S., how have China and the U.S. weaponized trade? I would argue that actually China and the U.S. have been responsible for weaponizing trade. So, I mean, Chinese foreign policy is defined in economic terms. It's about exporting the Chinese model. It's about, it's about um, you know, understanding that people will not fight against a regime if they are happy with the regime um, because they're economically content. So China's domestic and foreign policy philosophically are actually very closely aligned with one another, which is to create peace and harmony through economic economic well-being, which is, you know, it's socialism with Chinese characteristics very much has (laughs) that um, kind of managed capitalism flavour to it. But, but, you know, I mean, you know, I don't want to get Marxist on all of this, but it's, it's the essence of commodity fetishism right you give people something you give people something that they want um make sure they have it and then they're obsessed with that particular commodity and they're not that worried about about what else is going on around them so you have to see the context of chinese foreign policy as being ultimately an economic economic thing now that's not to say they haven't been building up an awful lot of troops and an awful lot of military capacity um in the indo-pacific region and particularly the south china sea taiwan blah 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 but what's important here is that it's that the way we started all of this and way we started to understand trade weaponization was when the rhetoric started to change between President Trump and President Xi. They were Mm -hmm. the best friends. Um, They were the... They, they really were the best friends. He's a great guy. I can, you know, everybody was was very much watching that that great friendship that was developing between them. And what we're now, what we saw over the period from 2016 onwards, was the imposition of of, of tariffs because we ha- because the US had this huge trade deficit. That was seen as a national challenge. Okay, and and so immediately the rhetoric started to change. It was unfair. Um, Trade was unfair. The trade surpluses were unfair. Germany and China were behaving in an unfair way. Everything was biased against America. Um, and the whole MAGA, Make America Great Again campaign was built on the sense that in trade terms, mm-hmm. the way China was behaving was unfair. Um, and so they were named in the the national strategy in 20, whenever it was, 2017, as mm-hmm. being the, or 20 there was one in 2017 and one revised in 2019 but they were regarded then as the existential threat for the United States as a competitor to the US model of of democracy and economic development and growth so it was a trade war in the purest sense of the word it was a trade war but the rhetoric around it was military it was all military. It was about defence. It was about um, it was about conflict, etc. So that's where we saw the whole thing start. 
And so it was actually stepping into that world of economics, which, you know, at that point with the Belt and Road and uh, made, in 20, made, made in China 2025 and all of those types of things, actually self-sufficiency in China, extending out Chinese economic reach, it was seen as a strategic threat and a competitive threat in the US, but then also obviously in Europe as well. You look at their... Ex- yeah. And that's what's on the strategic autonomy and all of that you look at that expansion you talk about that reach where you know africa is now hugely covered by china sri lanka what they've done there and more interesting you know barbados pulling away from the commonwealth but massive investment from china bringing them under the wing and where all that's going to lead to in a few years time is is quite worrying well, in Brazil as well, um, it's uh, you know you look at you look at the influence um, that China has. I mean, you know, people were asking why um, why the US have been suddenly so interested to go to Chile and um, Peru and Colombia, um, and it wasn't just to have a smoke. It was <laughs> it was actually it was actually because um, they're very large lithium producers um, yes. and. At the moment, lithium is going from uh, South America to China to be processed and then coming back to us in the form of batteries. So, you know, it's it, it there is already this type of strategic influence through trade. Um, and some countries have perhaps thought it through a little bit sooner than um, than we have. And, and, and that's the reason for going to these these countries and thinking about it. You know, China has thought strategically. Russia has thought strategically because they're more used to these strategic games. That's what it's all about, which is, you know, where where the issue of what businesses can do about all of this comes in, because understanding the unforeseen consequences, gaming out some of these scenarios is really important. Absolutely. And, you know, I think as, as I listen to you, talk about this, my mind is going to one of my pet peeves, one of the things that concerns me most about business that is really kind of a become, unfortunately, I think a character, a defining characteristic of Western thinking is short-term thinking. That we have created what I would say are perverse incentives now to not thinking long-term, but thinking about quarterly targets, you know, annual goals. And this has obviously been driving our business decision-making for some time now, certainly over the, you know, since probably the, the, the late 1980s. And now I think that has spread into government because now it's all about what do we need to do to get reelected in the next election cycle? What do we need to do to hold onto the house, hold on to parliament, whatever it is. And our competitors, our, our two great rivals don't have to worry about those things in the same way that we do. No, you know, Putin may be facing many internal threats because of the decisions he's made, but he doesn't have a, a, a written deadline looming where he's going to be assessed and judged for his actions, nor does she after the latest uh, party meeting. And so is that, do you think, one of the things that's, that's, that's hamstringing us? as we try to deal with these problems, both as governments and as businesses, is, is this inability to think about the long-term consequences of these things? I'd say that's always been the problem. Um, if you look back to the 1980s and where thinking around corporate strategy was in the 1980s, it was all about building share, uh, stock, uh, building stakeholder value as opposed to shareholder value. A lot of the, the, the sort of 
learning literatures and things like that that were written during that time were about moving away from short-term thinking into, you know, the sort of casino economics into something that was more long-term and more sustainable. And everybody said, well, the advantage of Rhineland capitalism is the fact that it's longer term. It doesn't have that sort of short-termism of, of, of shareholder value. The trouble is that now shareholder value, um, fiduciary duty, et cetera, et cetera, has also been weaponized. You're seeing that in the Republican the Republican attitude towards um, sustainability, for example. Um, you know, you, you've got to promote um, a... a a fiduciary duty which means maintaining shareholder value and not think about broader things like social considerations or or the safety of the planet or the survivability on this planet and i think i think we're beginning to confuse all of those messages that's the problem that we have it's beginning to get very very complicated um because the message is short term the message is populist it's populist in politics and being able to think strategically beyond that point and see the big picture, when you need to see the big picture in order to be able to behave tactically and strategically in the short term as well, it's become very difficult. And, and part of that is, a, is you know, there's a lot being written at the moment about whether or not actually um, autocracies have a better have a better way of managing their systems compared compared to democracies, yeah. because in a democracy anything goes. And then you get this populism, and then you get the short termism, and it exacerbates it through a political cycle. Well, and this is the you know this is so much the focus of what we try to do with red team thinking is is give decision makers both in, in business and, and in government and indeed in the military, tools and techniques that require you to think more three-dimensionally about problems, to not just consider your little swim lane of, of you know, you know, increasing, you know, EBITDA or something like that. Uh, and also to think more long-term and to consider the second and the third order effects of your decisions. And... You know, it's interesting. Marcus and I just got through through leading uh, a, a class, and one of the students in the class, in the middle of, of learning one of these tools, she said, "You know, I learned this concept when I was getting my MBA, but I don't do this, and I don't know why I don't do this." And and, and, and you know, and my response was, "Well, sure, everybody who who got an MBA from a decent school probably learned half of this stuff as well." But just like you, they're not doing it because the why, I said, is because you're driven by short-term mm-hmm. thinking. You're incentivized to hit your quarterly targets, to meet your goals. Your bonus is tied to achieving those short-term goals. And, you know, you're an economist. It, the, the best way to drive human behavior is to, is to provide financial incentives for the desired outcome. And if you're giving people the financial incentive of hitting a target three months in the future, then you're never going to get people thinking long-term. I absolutely agree. And, you know, you'll be seeing this, but but if you're going to encourage organisations to learn as organisations and encourage that type of thinking, then they have to learn to a certain purpose. And that purpose has to be longer term. Your teaching, the learning process involves thinking, it involves processing information and, and, um, that's something that that we need to re-inject back into organisations because 
actually now we're having to deal with so much more information from an economic point of view. Yes, you can incentivize people through prices and short-term targets, but you also need to give them information in order to behave rationally. And at the moment, the information is so asymmetric that that that, that is a big challenge that we were referring to earlier, because effectively information is all over the place. It's asymmetric. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and therefore we'll go down that route and it might actually be a misguided one or, or might be a misdirection. And, and that's where this ability to, in military terms, sort the wheat from the chaff. You said there's just so much, you know, TMI, as my girls would say, you know, there's too much information out there and to deal with yeah. all of that and to pick the wheat from the chaff and work out, you know, where you're going to focus your time, effort and resources because strategy is about making choices and we don't all have the time, money, people to focus on everything. So we've got to be very judicious on where we do focus those time and energies. And it's hard to do that. And I think as Bryce was talking about, you know, where we help organizations is these tools and techniques allow them to take away the fog and see the unknown unknowns, look into those first, second, third, fourth order impacts that you might create given an you know, action X or Y and start to see through these things that are out there. Because this is goes back to what you said earlier, <clears throat> volatility and disruption. This is the new normal. And I think enough companies out there aren't asking that hard question about how do we deal with this, let alone accepting it that it's a reality. Do you find, Marcus, that organizations are saying to you, when do we get back to normal? All the time. Because that's a key question I get. They say, when do we get back to <clears throat> yeah. normal? Because I know what normal is. I know what I know when I can get back to normal. And I say, there's no normal to return yeah. to. You, right. you, there, there is nothing. What Now that we've got descent, we, we've put globalization under so much pressure, there is globalization. Witness the conversations we were having about China and, and South America and American elections. Everything is interconnected through 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 information communications technology digitization but what we don't have is an understanding of how to integrate that connectivity into our thinking and turn that into the new normal and if we've unplugged russia from that system for the time being there isn't a normal we don't know how that normal is going to play out we're in this massive process of transition digitally between you know where we were with information and communications technologies to digital communications in terms of technology that is a new paradigm we don't know how that works that's what we're struggling with at the moment nothing's going to be the same again how do you teach we had that? this conversation yesterday and it came up about the frustration of coaches with change management versus transformation and pretty much organizations yeah. are treating them as the same thing. You know, we're instead of doing a change program, yeah. we're now doing a, an agile transformation, but they're still time boxing it. <laughs> they're still sticking it within a 12 month yeah. or 18 month. And then we're done and it's back to normal again. And it's a mindset. And we were, absolutely. That's why I said the whole purpose of transformation isn't to transform your company, transform your company or whatever your product is. It's to transform your people be able to deal with constant change and that goes exactly as you said it goes to the mindset shift which goes to the culture shift so this then becomes the normal of we just deal with anything as it comes day by day we've got iterative decision making mm -hmm. we've got plans with optionality we roll with the punches we surf the waves as they come inbound and we that's the consistency of how you now move in to this world that's coming at us like a tsunami and i think if people are still fixed yeah. there with an 18 month plan then it's not going to end well. It's not. And, and this isn't limited, unfortunately, to business, though. You know, Rebecca, you know, I'm a big fan of foreign affairs. And, and I, I, 
you know, I have a lot of respect for, for a lot of the people who are writing these pieces, but for the past few months, I, I, with every issue I've been shaking my head increasingly because there's been so much being written about how do we get back to the old liberal or rules-based order that we had enjoyed so much, uh, you know, for the past several decades. And literally the current, the current edition has got like three or four articles about how do we rebuild the world order? And I'm sorry, but we're not going to be able to, the, the world order that existed has fallen. The question is how do we create a, a new order out of the rubble that can meet the threats and challenges that are being posed by these, these other regimes? Absolutely. And bringing it right the way back to weaponization of trade, that was one of the central arguments in the book, because the book was arguing that um, the more we have this sort of fragmentation and nationalism and economic nationalism, and people are uncertain about where they're going, uh, the more the populist regimes that are centered around all of this can actually harness a nationalistic sentiment, which then means those global institutions like the World Trade Organization, like the United Nations, no longer have any power. Um, they no longer have any meaningful power to, to structure um, international agreements or create that rules-based order, that concept of multilateralism, which uh, through the process of globalization, we all agreed with, and, you know, in motherhood and apple pie, and, you know, who wouldn't like the concept of, of multilateralism it's a good it's necessarily a good thing um china and russia know that and they say they're big multilateralists right um and and so it's it's about understanding what institutions go in place now that this whole period of populism has been worked through and those institutions have been destroyed and it's not necessarily russia and china that's destroyed them well, that's such a, so interesting. I mean, you know, you're 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 spot on. I mean, it's it's become almost laughable that you you watch these Security Council sessions happening on Ukraine. I mean, you literally have a a a, a permanent member of the Security Council that has fundamentally violated the UN Charter. This is exactly how how the League of Nations fell apart in the 1930s. Except then, the Germany had the decency to get up and walk out of the room. And you know, Russia's just just content to sit in the seat and <laughs> Keep it you know warm. put its feet up on the table. But but I mean, it's like why is it? You know, you watch this and it's why are we even having these discussions? The UN is so patently meaningless at this point in this conflict. Well, and the World Trade Organization yeah. has. I've also used this League of Nations analogy for the World Trade Organization because it has no power. It was meant to be the means by which disputes like um, tariff and dumping and so on were, were settled and the US said hang on a minute that's not that's not in our interest we'll step yeah. out of that and then you've got all these trade agreements which have also stepped out of that and they are geopolitical they're power plays and it's undermined the World Trade Organization completely and you know I think the most interesting thing for me was when sanctions and tariffs first came in, sanctions and embargoes first came in at the beginning of the Russia-Ukraine crisis. There was nothing on the World Trade Organization website. Amazing. Amazing. Well, you know, one of the, the things that we're doing together with you and with Coriolis Technologies is uh, putting together this Future of Strategy Summit uh, in November. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what we're trying to do with this, because this is really your vision, and it's it's a, it's a, it's a vision about trying to solve for this problem, helping businesses, helping government, helping military think about things in these in this new light. Yeah, I I, I mean, thank you. It's an enormous privilege to be able to work with you on this um, because. 
I think the most important, the biggest thing, the biggest challenge that we face at the moment um, is around is around understanding economics and trade as a domain of warfare. We've had sanctions, we've had embargoes, we've had restrictions, export controls implemented as a result of the desire to limit money to um, the Russian military um, regime and and, and military um, actions. The problem that we have now is that that is having a knock-on effect on the global economy. As soon as it happened, the bank said, we can't fund anything that might touch Russia, so we're going to shut down all of our supply chain operations until we understand exactly how they are. Um, and, And the result is what we're seeing at the moment. So by bringing together banks and policymakers and defence and security and military professionals to understand each other's perspective on how to constrain um, a a power um, like a Russian power, it helps us understand the unforeseen consequences of what might happen in the future. So we think that if we model something that is likely to cause a supply chain crisis and we then work out what the unforeseen consequences of that supply chain crisis might be for um, for banks, for businesses and for foreign policy experts and for military, then that's actually going to help us start to bring together not a multilateralism, but a, a consensus around the best way of handling all of this. And de- if you like, um, demilitarizing, de-weaponizing um, trade in the future. This is so important. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier, this holistic view of how we go forward together and ex-military, you know, the, the number of times we worked in silos and our own stovepipes and you get your own levels of arrogance across the different divides. And we've seen that in so many different environments and so many different events that have gone on. I think if you, you know, the government and military work well together-ish, but I think bringing in the commercial sector into that and then fusing it all together with all this intelligence, this knowledge, from all of those sectors as one, it's got to be the way forward how you deal with these really, really complex problems that we're struggling with. Well, it's got to be it's got to be for both business and for government because the reason I say that is because from 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 a business point of view, it goes back to what you said early on, Rebecca, that that whether you like it or not, your business has been enlisted in this conflict. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're if you're going to be sent to the front. It behooves you to to understand how to use your carbine and how to uh, you know wear your helmet at, at the very least, and so you know understanding the role that you're playing and the, and the challenges and opportunities that creates is essential for businesses. The other thing, though, from the government perspective, is you know we are in this conflict now. We're in 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 really two related conflicts, I think, one with 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 Russia and one with China, and they're mobilizing every facet of their of their societies for these conflicts and and as you've described so eloquently been very successful at weaponizing trade as part of that and they have the ability to to very forceful forcefully enlist their economy economic sector in these conflicts and and use it as a weapon if if we kind of continue to maintain an arm's length relationship between between geopolitics and business in the West, then then we're really both both groups are fighting this war with one hand tied behind their back. 
Agree completely. Agree completely. And and that's the fundamental principle of, of what we're trying to do. This is about um this is about the battle for the twenty first century. There's no there's no no way we should exa- I mean it sounds like an exaggeration, but it isn't. It's a battle for the twenty first century. That's technology, that's military, that's business. And if we're going to help corporates and help financial organizations understand how they have been conscripted actually into all of this then we need to get everyone to talk together because there are unforeseen consequences and this event will help people understand from a 360 perspective where all of those different um those different conflicts and um and um, problems are coming from and potentially how to solve them i'm excited i think it's gonna be a fascinating yeah. discussion some great people there and obviously we're all going to get to be in London together again. So bring it on. Looking <laughs> forward to it. Thanksgiving. It's worth missing for this. Hey, this has been such a great conversation, Rebecca. Thank you so much. And and you mentioned one of your books, The Weaponization of Trade. We'll put a link to all of your books in the There's notes as well. I, I uh, If I could... <laughs> There you go. I, I I was gonna say I was gonna grab them, but I think I'm gonna pull my cable out of my headphones. But you know what I'm gonna do it. Just oh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna knock my plantos if I do. But there you go. Turn them all off. What we have for gaming trade and weaponization. We have the weaponization of trade and gaming trade. Two excellent books. We'll put links in the show notes. But this has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for joining us, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode. There, you'll also find a link to our free assessments. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.